Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios. I'm the show's host, and we have the opportunity to speak with experts about the 30,000-piece puzzle that is healthcare and health IT, and every one of our guests gets to share their piece of the puzzle. So excited to share our guest today, Nicole Sweeney. Would you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks so much for the opportunity to be here today. My name is Nicole Sweeney. I am the general counsel for Chris Shared Services and also the chief privacy officer. Chris Shared Services supports six HIEs, health information exchanges, and health data utilities throughout the country. And I also directly support two of those health data utilities in Maryland and D.C. also as their general counsel and chief privacy officers. And I'm just generally kind of a data interoperability privacy nerd and really enjoy these conversations. Okay, so let's just like spend this time nerding out. But I want to start with the basics, like for somebody who is, doesn't know what an HIE is or that whole transition, like there's a lot of acronyms. Yeah. We've got HIE, we've got TEFCA, we've got now QHINs, and then, you know, the, under the umbrella of interoperability. For somebody who's kind of just getting on board to this conversation, can you help them catch up? Sure. How many hours do you have now? <laughs> yeah, I will try to give a very high level overview. So, I think the easiest way to explain health information exchanges and their evolution, which is health data utilities, is to really think about what normally happens and how data exchange happens in just normal practice for clinicians, right? So you go into your clinician's office and he or she or they maybe, you know, takes your blood pressure and then you see a specialist, right? And the specialist sees your blood pressure and like, oh, that's a little high. I wonder if it's normally that high. You know, in the in the old days, they would have called up your clinician or faxed something over and asked for your records. And it could have taken days or weeks or sometimes even longer. Sometimes they never got there. And so what health information exchanges do is they allow that real-time access to people that are allowed to see the data for purposes for which they're allowed to see it. The same clinicians who would be seeing the data via paper or fax in a very long time can now see it at the point of care when they're there. So it's integrating different systems and different data streams and normalizing them and translating them. So no matter where I show up, even if I show up halfway across the country or entirely across the country, that clinician, as long as they have the legal authority to see my data, can see it 
in almost real time, if not in exactly real time. The same thing goes for if clinicians need to send things for payment to your payers so that you can get prior authorization faster and for, for other reasons as well. It really just enables things that should be happening anyway much faster. And then taking that one step further, this concept of health data utility, which Maryland has really embraced in Chris Shared Services. The idea here is that health is whole person. We know that, right? It's not just me showing up at my clinic to my clinician. It's where I live. It's the environment that I'm in. It's my social structures. So if we're just exchanging data about that one little piece, we're missing so much health of healthcare, not to mention the human service aspect of it, which people may be eligible for. And if they are, we want to make sure that we're telling them that and getting the data to where it needs to be. So the health data utility takes that HIE concept and plugs into it the public health data, right? So data that might be coming in from other sources and sharing it as appropriate too. So an example of that is COVID immunization data, right? We had all these people going to these huge stadiums. I was one of those people. And to get that information back to my clinician, it would have, very, would have been very difficult for the Maryland Department of Health if they didn't have someone like Chris, who was already connected to all the hospitals that could then take that data and tell my clinician, hey, Nicole has had her vaccine. You don't need to call her. Or, oh my goodness, Nicole hasn't had her vaccine and she has all of these co-occurring conditions. So please call her. And now is usually around the time as a chief privacy officer that I like to mention that patients are allowed to opt out. If you hear all of this and think, ooh, I don't want my data to be shared in that way. First, please call me because I can tell you all the reasons I think it should be shared <laughs> and why the good is better than the, the pros are more than the cons. But if patients, ultimately, it's their choice. If they don't want their data exchanged through a health information exchange, they can go and opt out of these health information exchanges. So really helping build a little bit more of a comprehensive picture of data. And when you're talking about working with six HIEs in different regions, I mean, some people visit Maryland and vacation in you know, Oregon and maybe have exactly. a health event that happens there. So we want that exchange exactly. of information to be available. Exactly. I give the example all the time of my son was two. We were at Disney World and he got an ear infection. And it was great to be able to show up in urgent care in Kissimmee, Florida, right? And have my son's records available. He's He's allergic to penicillin. So it's great to be able to have that right there, even though we're thousands of miles away. Yep, exactly. Okay, so tell me now, uh, from what I understand, well, we're going to be at, I'm going to see you in person at the Civitas conference soon. Yeah. So I'm excited for that. And can we talk about what happens there? This is from my, it'll be my first time going to this particular uh, conference. And I just feel like it's going to be a lot of policy and really understanding, okay, what's going to happen with our healthcare data maybe in the next year and beyond. Uh, do I have a, an accurate reading on that? I think that's pretty accurate. And I think there are different levels. So the CIMITAS conference brings together HIEs from all across the country and also um, what's called regional health information collaboratives, excuse me, regional health improvement collaboratives. They are very similar to HIEs in some ways, in other ways, but we all have the common goal of interoperability for better health. And we also very much believe that the solution is at the local level and that we should be taking solutions at the local level and seeing how we can 
employ them across the country rather than doing the same thing in different areas that might not work? How can we learn from each other and say, oh, this works really well in Arizona. How could I take it and bring it to Maryland and make it work for my state? So that is a lot of what the conference is about. It's about wins in different places and talking together about, you know, how can you take this win and make it a win for you? Or how can you take that win and realize that would never work, right? So like, let's get that off the list. So it's a lot of sharing. This particular conference is based on relationship building and the, the various interested parties that we have and understanding how that all connects into the public-private partnerships. So there's going to be speakers in that area as well. And then I'm really excited. We did this last year and we're doing it again for something we're calling the Unconference. And that is basically... You get to go to the conference, but there are these little sessions where it's much more interactive. It's more just people sitting around tables and brainstorming about things like common issues that we all have in healthcare exchange and interoperability that we're trying to figure out. So the the lectures and talks are more about like, what have we solved? And the unconferences are more like, what is still out there and how do we do this together? We do that all year round, Civitas, but this gives us a platform to come together and do it in real time. And I'll actually be facilitating one of those. I'm very excited. My areas of expertise is sensitive health information and data exchange, specifically, excuse me, around reproductive rights. So talking through how do HIEs and really anyone honor what patients want if they consider their data sensitive and they do not want it to be shared, but want all of their other data elements shared. So that's something we're talking about from a legal and policy perspective. I can't wait to talk to you more about that. (laughs) So I've been, we've been doing this federal draft rule book club in our hit like a girl pod community. We've been reading like it's awesome. And so one of the ones that we covered was the HIPAA privacy rule yeah. with HIPAA reproductive rights. Mm-hmm. But that's still just a draft, right? It hasn't passed. Can you share with our listeners what that is about and why it matters? Sure. So the HIPAA draft rule, and again, this is a draft rule. So for those of you who don't eat, sleep, and breathe regulations like I do, a quick primer on the federal regulatory process. And this is something that I was involved in for over a decade, working with SAMHSA and CMS and ONC, uh, helping them draft these regulations. So I get to see all this stuff in real time, which helps demystify it in a lot of ways. It's You can follow the system if you sort of know the steps. If you don't, it seems totally intractable, but I'll hopefully explain it in a way that makes sense. So just from a rulemaking perspective in general, right? We have laws that Congress has passed. In this case, it's HIPAA, right? Which was passed in 1996 and updated three times since then, I think, something like that, quite a few times. But in the meantime, and in the law itself, there's lots of things that say like the secretary shall, or, you know, it's sort of the law is kind of the bones and not even like all, what do we have? 212, whatever. Not even all 212 bones, like 14 of them. (laughs) And then you're like, how do I make this into a person? And that's what the regulations do. So after a law is passed, there are specific places in the law that say like, hey, you federal agency, fill this in here. Or we're going to give you discretion to change this in the future based on changing law or uh, changing things that might be going on out there, like in the case of Dobbs um, and various things like that. So once the law is passed and the president signs it, the relevant agency, in this case, it would be Health and Human Services, 
figures out how to actually implement this thing, how to take the thing from 14 bones to not only 212 bones. I can't wait for someone to comment on this and tell me the actual number of bones, by the way. I'm looking forward to that. But we're going to pretend it's 212 if it's not that. And like the flesh and the hair color and the eyebrows and the eye color and all that sort of stuff. I'm going to take this analogy way too far in a second. So, so stick with me. But in any event, the they really figure out what does this actually look like and how are we going to implement it? And so when you are a corporation or anything else like that out there that has to comply with a law, it's not just the law that's on the books that Congress writes. writes. It's also the regulations where they flesh all of this out and figure out, okay, what are we going to do? So since 1996, HHS has been issuing regulations. And if you have heard of the privacy and security rule, or the privacy or security rule, those are the HIPAA regulations, 45 CFR 164 and 160, which is scary. Someone's going to correct me on that too. Impressive. Um, wow. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably not right. Someone's going to correct me on it. But those are the regulations that correspond to the law. And they really say, okay, this is what the law said, but we're going to fill this out here. This is a little bit more here, a little bit more there. And because they have the force of law, there needs to be some sort of public input. So the public input in the legislative process, right, is that if you don't like what your legislator did, you get to elect somebody else next time. The people in the agencies are, many of them are there for their entire lives. And frankly, we want them to be because they need the type of knowledge that they have accumulated over a lifetime to do what we need them to do for us. But if you don't like what they're doing. They, you can't unelect the head of whatever agency or the middle person at the agency that's writing a lot of the regulations and doing a lot of the, the groundwork for them. So, uh, and you frankly, you wouldn't want to unelect them because they do an incredible amount of work. They work their butts off to, to make these things real for us. And they're really grateful for those folks. So to hold them accountable um, and make sure there's public input, when they draft these regulations, they will put out proposed regulations, right? So they will say, this is what we plan on doing. And then they will publish that in what's called the Federal Register. If you ever want to go on and see that, you can go to regulations.gov and see all of the regulations that are out there, including things like how many balloons should be let out in the air at any time. There's like lots of fun things if you get really nervous about it. Once it's published, people have typically around 60 days, sometimes less, sometimes more, but typically around 60 days to comment and say, hey, this is where I'm going to take the analogy too far. Like, really like what you did with the hair, but maybe you should put highlights in it instead. Or like, hey, you're missing a finger on that hand, right? Like if you really want this to work, you really need like an opposable thumb. So people get to write in and say those types of things. Like these are the consequences of your proposed rule at a discrete level, right? So there might be many, many proposals. And then based and then people, thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of, of people and companies write in. And then based on what they say, the, the agency has to go and read all of those comments. So every comment that comes in, they have to read them and then they will put out a final rule. And the final rule has to include all of the comments that people wrote, not word for word, right? It doesn't say Nicole said this and Joy said this, but it says people generally have this concern and then they have to respond to it and either say like, thank you for the concern, but we think we don't agree with it for these reasons or, you know, thank you for the concern and we're so glad you brought it up because now we're going to change X, Y, and Z. So ultimately, a final rule is published, which typically takes effect 60 days after it's published. And it includes 
everything that the public says, which is really cool. It's a really awesome thing to be able to be a part of the process. Sometimes you can actually sort of see yourself in it. You can see like a little phrase that you put in there or something. It's very gratifying. And so we end up with a final regulation that again, really fills out the law and companies are have to abide by that as well. And it's based on the input of what folks say. I think what's important to know is it's not like a scale or a balance. Like they don't put all of the people liked it on one hand, the people that didn't like it on the other. And if one weighs more, they go with that. They could have 90% of comments that say, we don't really think this is a good idea. And they could still decide. In fact, they could have 100% of comments that say they don't think it's a good idea. And as long as they explain that they read the comments and listened to them, and these are the reasons that they disagree with that, they could have the exact same proposal. So that was probably much more than he wanted to know about well, administrative procedures. <laughs> no, I mean, and there's there's a couple there's a couple ways that I want to weave with this. And one sure. is as somebody who has read several draft rules and final rules and then, you know, made business decisions based on those. Like mm-hmm. ultimately that is those are the rules of the road that says, they okay, are. here, here is how we will be proceeding. And I find that one, these draft rules are oftentimes hundreds of pages long. They're mm-hmm. often written in a way that's not particularly easy yeah. on, you know, for the reader. And then I think it's also quite intimidating to submit a comment because either as an individual or if you're collectively get, you know, gathering comments to submit perhaps like on behalf of an association or something, submit it with a like very formally. And uh, like that's the part that I want to help demystify for people because I have never submitted a comment. I've definitely had thoughts about it and you know, I've of things that I've read, but I've like, even I haven't gotten over the hump of like, you know what? You need to be thinking about X, Y, and Z. And I don't know why. I don't know why that is, but it sounds like you have probably a lot of experience either co- like collecting or mm-hmm. or commenting on these rules. And I kind of want to pull the like curtains back of what is that experience sure. like? <laughs> sure. I have lots of experience on both side of it, sides of it, right? For 10 years, I read them and helped CMS and HHS draft final regulations based on what they said and what the agencies wanted to do. And now I'm on the other side where I'm drafting them for our trade associations. I'm going to start with a person who reads them sort of to demystify that or make people feel better about commenting on these things. There are lots of comments from lots of people that range in levels of understanding of the different areas, right? So there are going to be some big name law firms that go, I mean, that will, will submit a page, a comment letter that might be hundreds of pages long. Like sometimes I was reading them and I was like, is this longer than the regulation? Like, how did you make a comment letter that was longer than the regulation? This is absurd. And then there are other ones that are two paragraphs long, right? And they might be about one issue or they may be about a theme. A lot of them are very personalized. And both have an incredible amount of value. And I will say as someone that has read them and has been in the room when the government is drafting these regulations based on the comments, those ones that are two paragraphs long, like they don't, they're not just like, oh, these are, this is two paragraphs. This person didn't know what they're talking about. We're just looking at the legal ones. They read those and they make a huge impact. And I'm thinking of one example in particular when I was working on with SAMHSA on some of the part two regulations that are related to substance use disorder, folks were tearing up. I mean, it makes an impact. Individuals make an impact. I think especially people who are able to say, 
this personally will impact me in this way, or I have had this issue. And the same thing for corporations, right? If you generally kind of write about all of the like political reasons or strategic reasons you don't like something, it's definitely going to be read. But I think the ones that really make more of an impact are the ones that say, we kind of agree where you're going. Like what you're trying to do is a good thing. Let us tell you with our hands dirty, boots on the ground, why this probably isn't going to work. Or it might work, but here are the unintended consequences. So anyway, if you want to submit a comment, you should. They are all kinds up there from all different types of folks. It's very easy to do. You can submit it online. Um, So you would go to regulations.gov and you can look up the rule by what's called a RIN number, which would be on top of the regulation. Sometimes I find it hard to find those are like 10 digits long. So you can search by agency, you can search by keyword, and then it's it's like writing an email. You can, or if you write in a, you write it out in a Word document or something or a PDF, you can attach the PDF. So submitting the comment, not actually writing it, but submitting the comments, even the ones that I write that are 10 to 15 pages long, typically takes me less than five minutes. In fact, I would say most of the time it takes me less than two minutes. It's a very, very friendly website for users. They've done a really good job with it. So really highly encourage folks to submit comments. And then when you're submitting a comment, if you're if you're if you see the rule, and this happens to me too, and this is what I'm paid to read the rules. And when I see thousands of page rules, I'm like, oh my dear God. Like where do I even start? Right. Like I get overwhelmed. I have to like take a walk around the block. <laughs> Can I chime in with that? Because that's yes, what we've I've, so we've been using AI. We've been using chat PDF and basically all of the draft rules come in a PDF format that I can then plug in and essentially ask questions of it. And I say, yeah. what are the top 10 takeaways? And it'll point me to the page numbers. And for like $5 a month subscription for the, being able to do this, it has been a total game changer. We're calling it the Oracle. And in our book club, we're just like, okay, there's five or six of us together, you know, sitting around looking at the same document, but with different perspectives. I was like, okay, what comes up for you, Susan? Like, what are you thinking about? And what about you, Sarah? And so we'll ask questions and it'll point us to the page within and within the document. And that has been the part that has been really empowering over, you know, just being able to use technology to help get farther faster, because it is a slog before there's been people who like print these out and get their highlighters and you're, you've got the little like post-it tabs of like, you know, themes and you're like, that's a heavy lift to do that. Literally and figuratively, I've like carried them around to backpacks before. So I love that. I had not heard about that before. And I am going to share the good news of that with other folks. Please do. Please do. Yeah, that is excellent. And I would say if you don't want to use AI or like you don't want to pay the $5 a month or if that seems, you know, a scary for one reason or another, a trick that I use and like I use this even now as somebody who, again, is paid to write and comment on these this rules. I have lots of other stuff to do too, right? Like I don't want to just read yeah. these rules all day. Yeah. <laughs> there are typically FAQs that the agencies send out or uh, fact sheets. And you can really go like point by point within the fact sheets and see the, the non-legal language of like, what are they trying to do with this? And you can comment on that. Like you can get down into the granular, you know, as a lawyer, like, should this be and or or, or you know, whatever. There are people that are going to do that. But if, they, if you are concerned about the concepts, which I think a lot of individuals are out there 
especially with the HIPAA rule that we that we started talking about, and then I got lost somewhere, which is what I usually do. It's you could comment on it just knowing just knowing the concepts, and the same thing too is is true of the rule itself. So if you if the rules have executive summaries and like the first five or ten pages, if you could just read the executive summary most of the time, and then decide, oh, I want to dive in more there, or I don't want to dive in more there. I know enough about it now. So those are some like kind of quick tricks. I love the AI thing. I have one more. I want to run it by you because this is before AI. And when I mean for the last several years, not so much with the draft rules, but with the final rules, I, instead of, they're basically the same page length, which again, can be thousands of pages. And then you're reading comment, response, comment, response, and it's pages and pages. So I would do a find for all of the tables and then just pull out all of the tables because that is typically where they have collected what has been finalized essentially in list format or table format. And then I would just be like, here's the tables. And then now all of a sudden my thousand page document is down to a hundred pages. And that has been super helpful too. I love that idea, especially because you know it might not give you the details, but it gives you enough to know where you want to go to the details, right? Yeah. So it's like it's like a cliff notes for starting. You could do the same thing potentially with just like find finding we propose to finalize or we are Mm -hmm. finalizing and then Mm -hmm. you could just be like the two sentences of what they want to finalize i mean they're going to have pages and sometimes 20 30 pages of the reason that they're going for this but if you just click you if you just do the tables or if they don't have the tables find search for we propose to finalize or we are finalizing it's usually going to be at the top before they talk about they're going to say it and say it again. And you can just pull those out. So yeah, that's another great trick. Okay. Uh, we, I, I know we can talk all day and geek out. <laughs> and I want to take I want to take up a little bit more of your time. But I do actually want to circle back to the HIPAA privacy rule around reproductive rights. Like, okay, so it hasn't been finalized. But let's talk about what it is and why it matters. And what it would entail, I guess, from a, from a patient perspective, what information could be exchanged to kind of sure. get a little cohesive. Yeah. So for context, right, a, a little over a year ago, the Supreme Court passed what we call the Dobbs decision, right? And that basically, in a nutshell, said to each one of the states, it's up to you whether abortion is legal and when it's illegal. It's up to you, state, you get to decide. And when that happened, Many states immediately made it illegal. Many states made it illegal after a certain number of weeks. Most states actually make it illegal after a certain number of weeks. So with specifically the illegality in some states for patients and also for providers, if they perform some of these procedures and with health exchange, right, taking us back to the very beginning of the conversation where you know, it is my job and mission in life to make sure that if your kid has an ear infection in Kissimmee, Florida, that they get you can get the data for them there. If you bring those two pieces together, right, you could have someone who has gone to another state in which the procedure is legal, gets a legal procedure, and then goes back to her or their state where it is illegal. And the next time that individual goes to a clinician, the clinician, you know, very reasonably looks up in their electronic health record, which is are connected to many HIEs in and of themselves, HIEs, like Epic is connected to all, all over the country that, and, and your clinician could see, oh, Nicole got 
a procedure that was illegal in our state and another state. And so this is something that's causing people very understandably a lot of concern, right? And there are some states that even have affirmative reporting laws. That's not what they're called, but I can't remember what it is right now, where you know, if you see as a provider something that is would lead you to believe that someone has committed a crime that you have to report it. Mandatory reporting. There we go. So folks understandably are, were, are very upset, right? Like you go to another state where it is illegal, you go back to your state, somebody sees the data, what are the consequences there? And so folks started asking that to the Department of Health and Human Services. Like, what are you going to do about this? Because it is scary. And not only is it scary, it's confusing. Like, people don't know what to do. Like, it, like let's at least make the rules of the road so that people understand what to do. So HHS took a year, which is actually very fast, very fast, and thought about, okay, how do we deal with these competing interests, wanting to make sure the data gets there, right? Because let's say the, the same thing, right? I go to a state that is, has illegal reproductive procedures. I get a legal productive procedure there. I go home and I start bleeding, right? And in my state, it's legal. I mean, it's illegal, excuse me. And so if we just block data from an illegal state, or excuse me, from a legal state to an illegal state, if I show up then at my hospital, and you know, maybe at this point, and this is a dire circumstance, so these are the things we have to think about, right? Maybe at this point, like I've passed out, like I can't tell people where I just was, or I don't want to tell you know that any of that sort of things. There could be really serious health consequences if the clinicians don't know that I've just had that procedure or I've just had that type of medication. So HHS did need to balance that, right? We need to balance this idea that. We do need health information at the point of care, no matter where that person is. And it can be and often is a life and death situation. And we need to make sure that when people go out of state to get procedures that are legal in the state that they go to, they are not then penalized and criminalized in a state where it is considered illegal. So those are the competing interests. And what HHS is proposing, and again, this is a proposed rule, and the comment period has closed. So sorry if people wanted to comment on it. You can't right now. But what HHS has proposed to do is rather than saying, we're just not going to exchange reproductive data, right? Like that was one option. And again, we come back to that situation of what happens if I show up in an emergency room. And instead of doing that, they said, if somebody asks for these data, that is for reasons other than treatment, payment, and operations. So you're asking for the data. And it's not for a typical healthcare reason. You're subpoenaing the data or something like that. Then that person would have that subpoenaing the data would have to provide an attestation that says, "I am not going to use this data to prosecute this individual or any other individual in that state." So it tries to sort of balance that by saying we still need the data to flow for treatment, payment, operations. But if it gets to a point where someone's asking for this data, to prosecute for or even investigate when includes just investigations or something that might lead to an investigation. And they can't do that. And the way that they're going to enforce that is through an attestation by the individual. That is something I didn't actually understand. So I mean, part that I, the part that I scared honestly about is just like, okay, the idea that our data could be in some instances used against us. And that part is, and you're like, okay, so it's a privacy rule. We want to make sure that people have 
a right to their privacy mm-hmm. and then and that the and also that the right the appropriate people who need the data to treat a person have what they need but ultimately it's a trust factor and I'm there's I think in this specific issue like we have some work to do on building trust rebuilding trust and I think we have I know we're close to time, so I'll just like leave this as a teaser. But I think we have a lot of work to do in general, not only about building trust, but honoring patient choice, right? So in most places right now, the patient choice is all or nothing, right? I can't say, I can, I can ask my doctor, my clinician, like, please don't share this information and they have to take a note of it. And they might be able to do that. ONC is, is recently released some proposed regulations that would ask EHR companies to have the functionality to be able to parse out that data when patients do that. But we're not there yet. We're not even close to there yet. So I'm really lucky to be a part of an organization that feels very passionately about this issue. And so in Maryland, we have, we are through the state, we have what's called a consent management utility. And it has not been stood up yet, but we are working on standing it up. And the idea is that the patient can go to one place and opt in and opt out. That's the first stage. And then stages down the line would be, I can opt out of sharing my reproductive data unless it's an emergency, or I can opt out of sharing my mental health or whatever it might be for you. So That is actually, I think, what the work that we need to do is not so much restricting data more or letting it flow more. It's giving the patient the choice about what is important to them. Nicole, I know like this, I'm so glad we get to see each other and I'm looking forward to meeting you and learning more from you. But thank you for sharing your expertise. And I'm sure that there is so much more that we could learn, but we've only got about a half an hour. So thank you. If people want to connect with you or follow you or engage with you, where would you recommend that they do so? I'm on LinkedIn. I should probably know I'm Nicole Sweeney. I have an H in my name. I should probably have like an Instagram or something, but I don't. It's okay. <laughs> but it's you're, you're busy reading the rules. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In, in printed out form. If you printed out yeah. Instagram for me, I would follow it. But anyway, yeah, I'm in, feel free to reach out in LinkedIn. And then, you know, if it seems like we need to reach out further, I'm happy to provide my contact information. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and all that of you do. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.